Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nick Posick, and today I'm speaking with Kevin Nadal, author of Queering Law and Order, LGBTQ Communities and the Criminal Justice System, from Lexington Books. In recent years, the US has celebrated our continual, albeit rocky, progress towards equal rights for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer communities under the law. But in his new book, Dr. Nadal reminds us of just how far we have to go before equality is achieved. He examines a wide range of issues, transphobic legislation, police brutality, immigration, the prison industrial complex, and family law to demonstrate the implicit and explicit biases that persist in the justice system. Our conversation is set against the backdrop of a vacant Supreme Court seat and ahead of a pivotal U.S. presidential election. Kevin Nadal. Welcome to New Books in Law. I'm thrilled that you can join me. Today we're discussing your new book, Queering Law and Order, LGBTQ Communities in the Criminal Justice System. Yes, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, I'm you know, really excited to be able to talk about the book. Well, thank you for, so much for coming on. Many of our listeners um, are lawyers and legal scholars and might not be familiar or deeply versed in the framework of intersectionality or queer theory. Um, and in the title of this book, you use the term queer as a verb, you know, queering law and order. Um, what does it mean to queer law and order? Why is this important? Sure. I mean, so queer theory is, uh, you know, a theory that was established around the the time of the civil rights movement and afterwards, um, in which you know LGBTQ folks uh, were very interested in you know disrupting the ways that we learn about things. And so, if you look at pretty much any field, on um, many all of these fields are are taught through a very specific lens, which tends to be very Western, white, American, male-centered, heterosexual assumed, cisgender assumed, and so forth. I mean, so queer theorists describe describe this notion of queering things, um, and to queer things means to disrupt, to challenge, uh, to be critical of of how we've been taught about certain things, um, and to really take on perspectives uh, that are different, um, and particularly um, for LGBTQ folks, but but also, you know, in terms of even other historically marginalized groups. So people of color and women and feminist perspectives, um, people of different countries, um, non-Western uh, people, and so forth. And, and, you know, if we really think about it, um, you know, it really allows us to, to empathize with others, um, to really uh, honor and uh, value different perspectives. Um, so that people can, you know, perhaps see how systems weren't necessarily built uh, for people of different historically marginalized groups. And you said this in your introduction, right, that this book is, and creating this book is a part of your own healing process. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Could you say more about that? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, as a, as a queer person of color who grew up in the United States, I've seen firsthand, um, you know, many instances of discrimination and oppression, whether it be, uh, you know, interpersonally and in some of the uh, experiences that I've encountered throughout my entire life, um, or even just being very aware of different policies, legislations, um, actions, and so forth um, that have been very homophobic and have been very transphobic and have been very racist um, and have uh, been put in place to essentially um, keep people of different historically marginalized groups down. Um, and so in doing a lot of this research um, for this book, in addition to some of the original research that I've done on LGBTQ folks, um, you know, you start to learn um, how it's really a systemic problem. And there really is, uh, you know, this, this historical trauma that gets passed down from generation to generation um, because we've, you know, all have navigated uh, these systems, not in the same exact way, but, you know, in ways in which many people have had to overcome, you know, so many different uh, struggles and oppressions and so forth. And so for me, writing this book was very healing because I felt this collective sense um, of, of uh, you know, understanding other people's experiences, um, understanding that, you know, things that I went through uh, weren't necessarily, you know, just me, that lots of people went through similar types of difficulties. Um, and then just learning about, you know, some of the atrocities uh, that, you know, our ancestors, our forefathers and foremothers who identify as queer or foreparents, even who identify as queer and trans, you know, just what they had to go through um, and the, the, the ways that people had to fight in order for me to have the rights and the liberties that I have today. Sure. And you learned a lot in the process of researching the book, but what did you learn in the process of writing the book, right? It's always interesting to me uh, how authors, their ideas are refined and shaped and formed in the process of writing. What was that like for you? Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, so I'm a psychologist by training and over the past, you know, um, 10, 15 years, I've been focusing a lot on um, forensic psychology and particularly, you know, things like discrimination and um, its impact on mental health. Um, and I've also done a lot of work on, you know, understanding experiences of the criminal justice system. So I was very much aware of like, you know, everything that's been happening uh, to people in contemporary times, um, LGBTQ folks and their experiences with police and in the courts and in prison systems. I was very knowledgeable of those sorts of things. Um, but, you know, the history is what I actually had to connect to, you know, like um, history is so much more than just Stonewall. Um, I hope people learn about Stonewall. And I also hope that they learn every other thing about queer and trans history that goes beyond Stonewall. Um, and so just learning about, you know, each of these cases, many of them that haven't really been written about in, in academic literature before, um, things about, uh, you know, like that are uh, cases that, that have gone swept under the rug, um, cases that seem like, you know, individual local cases. Um, but then you start to see a trend that this was happening all over the country. Um, so when you look at sodomy laws, for example, you know, we when we think about sodomy um, and, and sodomy laws in general, we, we knew that they happened, they knew they were bad. But I was reading case after case of all these people who were 
you know, arrested in their homes for having sex with a same-sex partner, and it was consensual to, um, you know, uh, young people who were found with condoms on their person and arrested, um, and uh, you know, uh, because of sodomy, um, and so different things like that. Like I, I was reading about, like you know, a lot of the accusations um, about LGBTQ folks, which would be uh, classified under like you know these sexual predator laws that because sodomy existed, um, that if you did um, get caught or you know arrested on sodomy, you could be charged in this you know in, in these laws that uh, really are are classified for you know sex, sexual offenders. Um, and as a result of that, you know some of these punishments were um, you know not just uh, atrocious but also like caused a lot of significant psychological damage. Um, and so those were some of the things um, that I connected to. You know, I learned a lot about immigration and, you know, I didn't know um, that if you were openly uh, LGBTQ prior to 1990, um, you couldn't legally enter the country. Um, I think I maybe had knew, knew about that in theory, but I didn't know that it was written in law. Um, I wasn't aware of like... Um, you know, the masquerade laws um, or this notion that if people didn't dress um, according to their sex assigned at birth, that they could be arrested. Um, and, you know, many of these masquerade laws weren't even overused um, by police officers because people didn't know they weren't on the books. And so police officers would often bribe and shame um, these folks um, in order to, uh, you know, to, to get some money on the side. And so, you know, these are some of the things that that I learned about, um, and all of these things are, you know, really embedded in, you know, this overall, uh, this overall notion of, of systemic oppression towards LGBTQ folks. And so I hope that people, you know, who know about what's happening to LGBTQ folks today, that they really take the time to delve in to the history of it all. Um, and perhaps in doing so, they could start to see uh, the ways that the systems have really been, um, you know, made or designed um, to keep LGBTQ people from living their best lives. Yeah, and this book is packed with subjects, right? You mentioned immigration, employment, incarceration, policing, um, even legal representation. Um, your chapter on the court system was particularly informative. Um, how did you think about what was really going to fit into the scope of this book, right? It's kind of a finite document. How did you go about editing? You know, like I, I made the decision at the start of what I wanted to include in terms of, um, you know, general topic areas. And I think um, I covered, you know, a pretty good comprehensive uh, scope of, of what what the justice system or at least the legal system would look like for LGBTQ folks. Um, and within each of those sections, you know, I really have like a limit. Like I, I think each, if you come down to the draft, you know, are about 30 to 40 uh, double space pages on Microsoft Word, right? Um, and so for some of these chapters, I really had to condense to, to keep into, um, you know, that scope and, and with other chapters, you know, like it was just the right amount. Um, but, you know, not everything is included. And I don't pretend that everything is included. In fact, there are so many cases that I couldn't mention because, you know, there are just too many of them. And so I tried to choose, you know, some of the, the most representative cases um, that I could find um, that I think also would would, would speak to folks. Um, but, you know, the editing process, like with, with any editing process, it's, it's very difficult. Um, and you just have to make some, some hard decisions. But I hope that what, what 
I did get to keep in, um, you know, really uh, tells the story of what's happening. And I hope that, you know, future um, researchers, attorneys, civil rights activists, um, that, you know, they could use this as a jumping point um, to understand what some of uh, the other topics are or uh, other cases that, that weren't brought to light that they could hopefully, you know, do some of that stuff on their own. Yeah, and each chapter ends with these wonderful recommendations. They're really tactical and easy to follow. How did you, you know, that's always something that's hard for authors to to do, to say, okay, how do we apply this in the real world? How did you begin to think about that? Yeah, you know, it was very important for me to provide more tactical um, uh, recommendations because, you know, I didn't want to be somebody that just wrote about these things and, you know, where it was more conceptual and, you know, distant. Like I wanted these things to turn into, or the, you know, my words to turn into actual things that people could view as tangible that they could potentially do in their everyday life. Um, I think for me, part of that comes from, you know, my experience as a community organizer. You know, I, I, I tried my hardest um, for the entirety of my career to never just be that academic that writes for academic audiences. You know, I want people to be able to apply um, some of these concepts. Um, and, you know, even still, I feel like my recommendations, you know, they I feel like maybe I should have been more specific because there are other things that I think people should do. Um, but I also know that like, you know, like I, I, I know that they're, they're pretty solid and I hope people can take them and apply them, you know, in whatever capacity they can. Uh, because, you know, whether you're an attorney, whether you're, you know, a teacher, um, you know, there's different ways to apply uh, some of these concepts into your work. Um, and, you know, if I didn't specifically mention, you know, certain occupations, I hope that they could find ways um, to transfer some of the knowledge of, and, and some of the recommendations um, to make them more applicable to, to whatever career or field that they're in. It's true. And this is the kind of book that just every law library should have, oh, period. You. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But you you know, you mentioned your audience and in, you know, in the book, you describe all of the occupations um, and all of the interests that, you know, could, could find value in this particular publication. Um, how did you even go about thinking about that audience, you know, right. who you wanted your audience to be? Yeah, you know, what's funny is uh, I would say publishers probably don't like working with me sometimes because I'm like, I want it to, to touch everybody. I want this to, you know, apply to everybody. And, you know, it's very, you know, lofty in some ways. But in, in, in other ways, I'm like, because I have to, I want to, uh, to, to reach as many people as possible. Like, you know, I could have written this book just for attorneys or I could have written this book just for forensic psychologists or just for, you know, educators. Um, but that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to, to reach a general audience. Um, and while I specifically try to target, you know, different um, fields, not just in, you know, the, the writing and the history of it all, but, but also in the recommendations, you know, I, I really do hope that people can, can, can apply, you know, some of these things into their everyday life, because, you know, it's not just attorneys who are reading these cases and, you know, trying to figure out how to 
best, uh, you know, apply the law or even advocate for, for clients who have been wronged. Um, but it's also teachers who might see some of this criminalization of queer and trans people um, from a very young age to, you know, people who work in social services and nonprofit organizations to have some awareness of what LGBTQ people experience when they do come into contact with the law. So it really is a, a community effort that we all have to do our parts. Um, and, you know, it would be great if there could be a specific book like this for every single field. Um, but for now, it's like, you know, let's let's paint it with a broad stroke and see, um, you know, how many people we could reach and hopefully more more books and more articles can come in the future. Sure. And let's just for a second say that this goes straight to the top and you have the ear of the Supreme Court. Um, what, what would you what would you recommend that they for, well, first of all, which of the recommends would you put forward or the recommendations would you put forward first? Right. And then uh, what else would you suggest to them? What would you surface? Yeah. And we're and we're talking about the current Supreme Court. Yes. And the <laughs> hypothetical. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think one of the things that I hope uh, the current Supreme Court justices and, you know, whoever else that may be nominated and put through in, in the future, near future, um, that they just acknowledge this history of oppression. I think that's, you know, one of the most um, difficult things for for people who have been essentially raised in the system and have, you know, spent their entire careers in the system um, is for them to, to challenge or to think about um, how what they've been taught may be wrong or what they taught have been taught may be incomplete or how, um, you know, yeah, you want to follow the letter of the law, but if the laws themselves uh, were already created to discriminate against people, um, then maybe we have to reconsider, you know, those laws to begin with. Um, and so, you know, I hope that, um, that, you know, and not just Supreme Court justice, but, but judges on all levels um, that, that they're even just open to to that notion of um, of systemic oppression and how uh, how systemic oppression has been you know ha- has really uh, been uh, has bled into to every aspect um, uh, of our system and that includes biases that includes you know overtly discriminatory laws um, you know that's what I hope people would read if if there was just a quick uh, takeaway. Um, you know, I really would like for, uh, for, for justices and for, you know, just again, lawmakers in general to, to just hear some of these facts, to just hear that, you know, LGBTQ people are overpopulated in the prison system, um, to just hear that, you know, one in every two Black trans women have been arrested um, or in prison at some point in their life, you know, or uh, to hear the experiences of, of trans women of color um, in relation to police, in relation to immigration. Um, and, you know, empathy is key. Like hearing about these stories is so key to to understanding, you know, what people's lived experiences are. And just because you don't experience things this way or um, perhaps certain, you know, judges or attorneys um, or even lawmakers, you know, they may view the world as, as a safe and fair place because of their own personal experiences. Um to maybe have some empathy and to know that, you know, if literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are saying that they have had ex- experiences of injustice in this system, that maybe there's something to that. 
uh, and maybe we need to to hear more of these stories uh, so that we can prevent you know injustices from continuing in our system. Sure, and this this book was intended to be released much earlier this yeah. year. I think uh, originally April, yeah. um, and this has been you know you're a prolific author. You've been through this process yeah. a number of times. Um, I imagine that publishing a book at this particular moment um, where things are moving quickly right. it, it presents a unique challenge. Right. Um, is what does it mean to publish a book right now on this topic? Is do you see it, this being a moment of increased urgency for these issues? Yeah, for sure. I think there definitely is an urgency to all of these issues, um, and a lot of these issues are are no longer just you know conceptual or theor- theoretical, but that they're you know are actual practical consequences um, for whether or not we take action um, on some of these issues. You know, so as as I wrote this book a year and a half ago. Um, I was writing about the injustices of, of the immigration system, for example. And as I write about these things and, you know, a year and a half later, we're still seeing, you know, kids uh, locked up in cages or uh, trans women who are sexually assaulted and killed um, in these detention centers. So it's there are real life consequences. You know, I, I was I was quite disappointed, to be honest, and, you know, as, as expected, that the book didn't come out earlier, um, because in some ways, you know, it's already dated, um, you know, to uh, for, for one thing that that stood out in my mind was, um, you know, in, in June, when essentially, uh, you know, federal uh, non-discrimination act were um, or discrimination on a federal level against LGBTQ folks um, in the workplace was was barred essentially in or at least was included in a non-discriminatory act uh, in the Supreme Court. Um, you know, now my book was already too late for that because it, it talked about it as being an abstract idea, and then you know finally it was passed. Um, but even in terms of just that, what has happened this year, we see how the government has essentially failed to act, um, you know, in in ways that uh, may be for the public good. Um, We see how, uh, you know, the revolutions that have happened and has continued to happen, but particularly, you know, after the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, we saw how that, uh, you know, really elevates um, the importance of, of of activism and people using their voices to, uh, to you know, express disdain towards the government. Um, but you know, we're seeing so much change um, every week, um, and all of this is related to law and order. And uh, if we can, um, if if I could, I would update the book regularly. Uh, but you know, unfortunately, we can't do that. But it's so much, so much is happening that I hope that people. Um, We'll, we'll take the book, understand that when it was written and, uh, you know, and, and know that there's there's always going to be so much work that we need to do in order to fight for uh, people to, to live their best lives. And this book has, you know, only been out for, I think, a couple of weeks now. I went to your launch, by the way, your virtual launch, which is a, an amazing experience. Um, but how's the reception been for it? Um, how How is the community responding? You know, I you know we've been getting a lot of positive reception. Um, I think there's just so much stuff going on that um, you know I I don't know that I I don't know like how how you know the general public is is responding. I mean, people that follow my work and attended the book launch and you know my colleagues and so forth have been you know very positive um, in their reactions. But I I hope that 
hopefully when things settle down, um, that people might be able to take the time to read the book and perhaps, you know, assign it into their classes, whether it be in, uh, you know, in law school or in graduate school, um, because it's so needed. And it's not even necessarily that, you know, I just want my work to be read. I just... there's a sort of a responsibility because I know that people aren't talking about this. I know that this isn't being written about. And so if this could be something um, that can be introduced to so many different people, um, I I hope it might be able to to change some perspectives, you know? So like in in law school, for example, if if this becomes required reading um, in, in, you know, some introduction classes that they may have, um, I hope people from the start will will even begin to conceptualize all their other classes differently for them to think about, you know, how can we be more inclusive of LGBTQ people in every aspect um, of of the, the of, of our learning. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I think the sooner that happens, the better it will be. And, and you know, it's not even just me and, and my work. I, I hope people just learn about this work in general and learn about some of the great work that a lot of these community organizations are doing, um, that a lot of these, uh, you know, advocates are, are, are doing um, because, you know, we all need to, to do this work because, again, people's lives really depend on it. Sure. And does anything really surprised you about the reception to the book or at least in this very early stages? I mean, I, I don't think anything's really surprised me. I mean, I, th- I think if anything, that the most common reaction that people have is something to the effect of like, wow, I didn't know that, <laughs> or I didn't realize that that was a thing, or, you know, I didn't understand that history um, of that. And I, you know, and that that's real, because again, like I mentioned, when I was reading and or doing my research for the book, like I didn't know a lot of these things too. Um, but, but this also just goes to show like just how much is, is missing in our, our basic general education, you know, like we don't learn about queer history We don't learn about uh, queer and trans studies. Um, At most, people probably learn about Stonewall, but people who are, you know, over like 30 years old probably didn't learn about Stonewall in their high schools and maybe not even in their colleges, you know? Um, And so... um, so, so it just goes to show that this type of work needs to be integrated at all stages, um, that people need to learn about, you know, injustices against LGBTQ folks, um, you know, as early as they learn about, you know, the civil rights movement, as early as they learn, you know, about uh, feminism or, or any other form of oppression, like they need to learn about this too. And, you know, you said that you would love to do an update for this book. Are you, what are you thinking about next? Whether it be, you know, an update to this particular volume um, or if it's something, some other project that you have underway. Yeah, you know, I think um, as, uh, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I think I'm, I'm definitely making notes as to what sections might need to be updated here and there. Um, but, you know, I would like to see this become a, a volume that gets updated regularly, you know, as a lot of, you know, textbooks do where they have several uh, or they have a new edition every year or two because it's, you know, it is very important. And because the law changes um, so 
frequently um, that we can't just have a book and, and expect it to to last for years or to be applicable um, in that same way for years. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I, I definitely do want this to be something that gets updated. I, I mean, I'm working on a, on a few other projects. One that might be most notable is, is I'm working on a book um, with a, a colleague, Maria Chateron Del Rio, um, on queer psychology. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of uh, demonstrates what I was talking about before. Like, you know, we have, I have this queering law and order that looks at the, the justice system from you know, multiple lenses, but not specifically at, um, from one field. Um, and so for me to write or to co-edit this book with, um, with Maria on, uh, on queering psychology, uh, you know, is now something that hopefully psychologists will be able to take these intersectional lenses and understand how various, uh, aspects of the field have been, you know, homophobic, heterosexist, uh, cis-sexist, and transphobic, um, and how we could apply this to our specific field. So who knows what's next? Maybe next after this, we'll be like, you know, querying forensic psychology, you're querying, uh, you know, uh, sociology, all the different fields that need to be queered up so that we can, you know, do the work that actually, uh, serves and centers LGBTQ people. Sure. And that speaks to what your larger OOV is going to look like, right? What is that body? Like, where does this fit into that larger body of work? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think for me, it's just that uh, I, I, I've been fortunate enough, and I actually, you know, write about that in my book, like, I've been fortunate enough to have the opportunities that I have. Most people in general don't have these opportunities. Most queer people and queer people of color um, and queer people of color in general don't have these opportunities. Um, and so for me to be able to, you know, have the opportunity to write books, it means that I, ha- I have to use that, that, that opportunity, that power, that responsibility um, to, to be able to, to use my voice and my platform um, to advocate against, uh, you know, oppression essentially. And so um, I think for me, it's, it's, it's continuing to, um, to, to figure out like what, what is missing. And that's always been a part of my trajectory is, yeah, some of this stuff is great, but you know, X, Y, and Z are missing and perhaps X, Y, and Z are missing because there hasn't been a queer voice or a person of color voice or a queer person of color voice um, to add their perspective um, in this way. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's been pretty much my mission is to um, to write about the things that I know aren't written about um, and to advocate for the things that, you know, either aren't be at being advocated for um, or aren't being advocated for in, in a way um, that people are actually listening to because, uh, you know, oftentimes people who are doing the advocating um, are silenced. Um, and so if I could use my voice um, to, 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 to do that work, um, then that's what I'm going to do. And how do you bring that into the classroom and into, you know, the community organizing work? Yeah, I mean, the classroom for me, uh, you know, and there's definitely the privilege of being a tenured professor is that I bring it into the classroom all the time. You know, I start day one centering all of these ideas. And, you know, um, it used to be that I was more um, afraid or wary about doing that because of, you know, potential negative student evaluations and so forth. So I do acknowledge that there's a there's a privilege of being tenured and being able to do this. Um, but but it's my um, my complete like uh, belief that uh, that every single 
topic, every single class one teaches, every single subfield of, of any discipline um, can center themselves um, on queer and trans issues, on feminist, woman, womanist issues, on racial justice issues. Um, and and to, to start off each class by acknowledging um, those things can be a really powerful way for students to engage in the material, you know. So right now, for example, I'm teaching a, a personality theory class um, in, a, in a general PhD uh, psychology program. And, uh, you know, we could go into what theorists have written about for centuries on personality theory, or, you know, we could start off by talking about critical race theory and queer theory and womanism and feminism um, as a way of understanding um, that this is how uh, traditionally things have been, um, or or there's been one traditional way of how things have been taught. And I'm going to start off with these things so that we're thinking about these these issues on the forefront. And so as we continue to learn um, about what traditionally has been taught, um, now you have a, um, a new perspective of how to um, how to to comprehend and um, you know analyze some of that information. Uh, you know, when we get taught things in a, in a chronological order from, you know, who started talking about these things, and then, at, you know, in week 14, you finally talk about feminism or LGBTQ issues or, or racial justice issues. Um, now you've had 13 weeks of not, you know, learning about these things, and now it's all an afterthought. Um, and so for me, it's really important to, to start from the very beginning. Um, in terms of community organizing, again, I think that it's very important to center yourself on understanding all of these um, these different identities and how different uh, oppressions and systemic oppressions, you know, affect all of your work. Um, and so starting at that point, um, because if you if you don't have that as a center and it becomes an afterthought, um, then, you know, you're not going to be able to do your work in the ways that is really pro-social justice um, because it becomes an afterthought. It becomes something that people might deal with if there's a problem, which is something that we see most workplaces do. They don't talk about diversity until there's a diversity problem. And oftentimes that's when it's too late. Um, somebody did something discriminatory um, that that's probably not the first discriminatory thing that they did, but it's probably the one where it was too much and where, you know, people spoke up. Um, And so instead of waiting for those types of instances to happen, why not start and center the conversation um, on, on these issues. Um, And so people are aware of these things from the start um, and uh, hopefully not necessarily preventing, but minimizing, you know, some of the damage that may occur had you not talked about these things at all. And your book is a great place to start. Um, I appreciate you uh, joining me in New Books and Law. I know they've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, for any of our listeners, where can they follow you, learn more about your work, and keep up to speed? Sure. Yeah, everyone can please follow me um, by going to my website, kevinnadal.com. You could follow me at Twitter at Kevin Nadal, um, and you could purchase the book um, on Roman and Little or on Amazon.com. All right. Thanks again, Kevin. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. Nice talking with you.